way to the prayer room. And there's three reasons that I got here so early this morning, and I thought I'd share them with you during our time together. The first reason that I got here early this morning to be in the prayer room is because I, I want to try to live a holy life, dependent on Jesus and not dependent on myself. The second reason is a little bit more of a confession than it is a testimony. It's because I wanted you to think I was holy because you saw me in the prayer room before service. And so that's one of the reasons I came. And the third reason is probably the most like um, fleshly reason is I just read an email wrong from Jess and got here super early. And what I love about this story is that I was in the prayer room, um, and I love making kind of a, a Holy Spirit office there. So I have my laptop out, my Bible, I've got coffee, I've got three pens and two journals because I don't know I need that as a minister pastor. And so I'm in the prayer room this morning, and I scared one of the wonderful church ladies that's here. I don't even remember your face. I was like too ashamed to look at you. But you came into the prayer room, and you asked this question. You said, are you alone? And I'm like, it's Pentecost Sunday. I'm a Pentecostal. How do I answer that theologically? Am I alone? And two or three are gathered. It's just me. She's like, who's this mustache guy with tattoos in our prayer room? And it's a co-working space. And I finally said, okay, uh, I'm, I'm speaking today. I to I'm totally legit, I promise. And then she kind of quickly, like, moonwalked out of the room, Michael Jackson style, and she found another way to, to pray in another room. And then three minutes later, another wonderful church lady came into the room. A second church lady. You guys have so many awesome church ladies and came into the room and then I'm not joking asked me are you are you in here alone and I'm like did I fail the first test they're sending in another church lady to, to see if I'm Pentecostal enough to speak on Pentecost Sunday and and so I jumped quicker to uh I I'm just like stuttering you know I'm, I'm hoping that tongues comes out but it's just awkward stuttering and then she says um well, do you, do you live here in the building? And I'm like, oh, so precious, bless her heart. She thinks I'm young enough to be a student that lives in the building. That's like the biggest compliment I've gotten all year. That's amazing. That's definitely a testimony. I'm not that young anymore. And so I kind of say, no, that that's, um, no, I don't live in the building, but thank you for thinking that. Um, I appreciate that. I put a lot of work into looking like this. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, then I just jumped to the, the, the point of fact that, no, I'm speaking later, so I'm kind of just prepping with the Holy Spirit. Again, she moonwalks out. You guys must do moonwalk training classes. She moonwalks out with the help of the Holy Spirit and probably go praise in another room. And that reminds me um, of the story of being on campus, serving at American University. So every year when about 1,500 freshmen move into campus at American and at Georgetown, we throw these massive parties so that we can connect in a relationship with students. So instead of them going off campus and, and doing the college thing, uh, they can stay on campus and then they can meet a group of people, about 20 student leaders at both campuses, who believe in Jesus, purpose, and community. So we throw these big parties. Sometimes like it's inflatable bowling, it's free pizza for 500 students, it's glow-in-the-dark lawn games, it's an event called Cones and Kai Alpha where we give away ice cream, but there's no ice cream cones, very weird branding. And so we do all these things to try to get the attention of students who are deciding in the first 48 hours of their college experience what is their life going to look like now as an emerging adult. And I was at the table a few years ago, there's inflatable bowling, um, we're hanging out, it's like 90s theme, so we've got like candy bracelets, it's, it's amazing. And uh, we're, I'm sitting there at the table, so it's a table like this, and, and I'm handing out soda, cream soda and root beer, root beer's the best beer, amen. Okay, so I'm handing it out, and there's hundreds of students lined up, and this young woman, uh, who I was interested in spiritually, began to take an interest in me relationally. 
So she's a freshman, and I don't know if she thought this tattooing was a birthmark, but it was getting a little bit awkward because she just kept asking about my story, and that's usually my job to ask about student stories, and, and I'm thinking it's her first night at college, you know, she's swinging for the fences, but I have to let her down easily. Like, I'm already taken, like, I've been married for nine years at that point, but I'm like, how do I let this young woman down, you know, she's like, first day at college, she's just going for it. And I, I, like, how do you bring up like a wife and child that you're a Pentecostal pastor in a conversation without being awkward? You don't. You just stand there with cream sodas and root beers and just be like, yeah, I just love meeting students like you. As a pastor, you know, my wife and I moved to the city. We have a, a young son, which, which means I'm committed to my wife, so back off. And, um, and then she like, you know, sends up, oh, my friend texting me. I'm like, you don't have an Apple Watch, but whatever. And she just like leaves. But I'll be honest, I, I felt pretty good about myself. I was like, I still got it. You know, I haven't been in college. I've been in college for a decade, but I still got it. So of course, I do what every minister does. I start to communicate the good news I've gotten. So I start telling staff and students, like, this freshman was into me. And I had to let her down, but she was into me because I still got it. Two minutes later, two minutes later, I'm still in my station, root beer, soda table. And this young woman, another young woman comes up, and I ask, where are you from? What are you here to study? I say, yeah, I'm a chaplain, I'm a minister at American University, and you know, my son, he was, he was running around here earlier, and she says, oh, your son is here. What dorm does he live in? pretty interesting to know that American University has currently graduated four current heads of state, and many presidents and vice presidents have come from Georgetown University. But what I love the most about campus ministry is that if you reach one student, you reach a future father, a future mother, a future politician, and a future world changer. So I want to show you a quick video and introduce you to my friend Chelsea, and you can know about her Kyoka experience. Let's take a look at that video together. Like, overwhelmingly cross our mind, and it's just a shock of like, 
But it was such a simple question. It was just, what are you going to do about it? I spent years wondering if God is real. And all of a sudden, it just became so obvious. Why not just ask him? And so, there was no burning bush. There was no lightning strike. There was no prophecy that came in that moment. Um, it just started in a quiet, intimate moment. It's me sitting there with my journal and just writing yes. And that was a yes to God. And just saying, God, if you're there, if you're listening, I'm open. And I think it was then when I realized that faith wasn't something that just happened to me or was going to happen to me and kind of change my identity or take away who I was. Instead, faith was a choice and an action. And I realized that there was a lot more agency and intellect involved in choosing to get to know Jesus. And it was in that moment that I kind of realized, oh, this changes everything. I love Chelsea's story in that line, this changes everything. If we had countless hours, I could show you video after video or introduce students that are in this room and share how God has changed their lives through other college students who are willing to share their faith. The phrase that we say in Kyle is this, what God does in you, he wants to do through you. And that happens by the power of the Holy Spirit because when we become God's people, our lives, our responsibilities shift. Paul uses very visceral imagery in the New Testament to talk about this. He says, we are no longer slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness. He's talking about this holy obligation that we have when we know Jesus to help others also know Jesus. What's interesting about the story of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of the church that we read about in Acts, written by Luke, is this, is that the Holy Spirit enables two primary things that I see working in college students' lives. It enables a bold and honest proclamation of who God is, but it also enables a community to live in such a way that is attractive to those who are not yet in the community. John reiterates this in his gospel when we find out, he says that they will know you are mine by your love for one another. So thus, it's usually, in my experience at American University and Georgetown University, it's usually students who have come to know Jesus like Chelsea, who are letting the Holy Spirit shape them, that are engaged in community, and then that community becomes what I believe to be one of the greatest apologetics for faith. Because I don't know what it's like in your workplace or in your neighborhood, but students on our campuses don't need another opinion piece they don't need another uh, news report or another thing to follow on social media. They need real people experiencing real life who are willing to be honest about who God is and where he's working. What I love about the ministry that we get to do as campus ministry uh, leaders, as campus missionaries, myself and my staff and our student leaders, is we really believe that we just want to live out the gospel close to those that might be far from God, so that they would encounter Jesus in and through us. We want to gather in spaces like this so that students can ask questions, but more than that, so that students could be loved. 
I love what the ecologist Nabil Qureshi said before he passed away. He said this. He said, most people aren't looking for an answer. They're looking for pastoral care. A world-famous apologist who can extrapolate and articulate the truths of the gospel in a training to our leaders years ago on campus reminded us that it's not about having the right answer at all times, although we should study and show ourselves the proofs that we can respond, but it's really about loving people in the right way. And not loving people according to how culture might define love, but a love that's rooted in the notions of good and evil. Romans 4 and 5, that we're to love with a sincere love. If you're a parent, you know that your love for your kid isn't a love just for where they're at. It's a love for who you see them to be. Your love isn't just for somebody in a moment, but it's a love that has an eye towards the future. That's what Chelsea experienced. And then that's what Chelsea has started to do in her own life, like the hundreds of students that have come through the doors of Chi Alpha in D.C. over the past 10 years and even longer. I want to say thank you, not just for sharing your building for our services or letting some of our students and staff live upstairs, but for your investment through prayer and encouragement. We are so thankful that this church is always at the heart and center of what God is doing in the lives of students in this city. We could not exist without your church and other churches like it. And I think it's important for you to know our goal is never to replace the local church, but to be a bridge to students who would never enter a local church so that one day they can fall in love with Jesus and then learn to love the local church for the rest of their lives. We say it pretty often as a freshman, we're glad that you like my alpha, but for you this is temporary. We hope that you develop a sense of hunger to be with others who believe for the sake of those that don't. And it's not always going to look like this. It should look multicultural, multi-generational. It should be uncomfortable and messy, but it's so that we can mature into who God has made us to be. So thank you for being a part of that story in my life, in the life of our family, in the life of our ministry. I want to jump into our primary text. I don't want to scare you, but we are going to be reading out of the book of Numbers in a talk that I've entitled Giants, Grasshoppers, and Greatness. And so if you have a Bible or an app with you, you can turn to Numbers 13. Don't worry, we're not going to study genealogies today. I know some of you are really concerned about that. I'm not the guy to do that, but maybe that guy exists somewhere. Let me give you a little bit of context before we jump into our primary verses, which will be towards the end of chapter 13. Just a generation before, God's chosen people in the First Testament, in the Old Testament, had been delivered from slavery. Now get this, some scholars say that 800,000 to a million Israelites were delivered through supernatural acts out of slavery. Now I think it's important for us for our conversation today to make a few distinctions. The first is this, is that when we are delivered, it's, we are given freedom. But then we're always in Scripture and in our lives today, we're always freed from something and then we're freed to something. We're always freed from something. We're always delivered so that then we can walk in victory and then collaborate with the Holy Spirit to see more things done for the kingdom. Pastor David didn't know I was going to talk about this, but he prayed it in his prayer before service. He's, he said this, he said, we're not just praying that we would be sweet before God, but that God would change us so that we could be a part of seeing change in the lives of others. We aren't just delivered so that now we've been set free. We're delivered and set free so that we can help see others set free and delivered. That's why you and I know Jesus, because there was a group of 
believers 2,000 years ago who realized that their own faith story wasn't just for themselves. It was also for the next generation of families, the next generation of students, the next generation of teachers, so that they would come to know about the ways of the kingdom. So they had been in a season of captivity. They'd been given freedom, which is how I would define deliverance. And then now they're, they're a few decades into trying to find their way to the promised land. And they're having a difficult time in a place that I often have a difficult time. And it's realizing that some part of our Christian life, when we walk in maturity, we need to step just from being delivered from something to then collaborating with the Holy Spirit to walk in victory in our lives. Absolutely, the Holy Spirit can deliver us. I've seen it happen time and time again. But what I know in my own story, the story of students, there's an even more interesting place of growth that takes place when someone begins to interact with the Spirit, whether through the spiritual disciplines, through prayer, and they begin to step in the posture of victory, in the identity of victory, and they begin to work alongside the Holy Spirit to see more things happen in their life. Dallas Willard says it like this. He says, Grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. See, we don't earn grace, but we have to position ourselves to receive the goodness of God. We have to pray for those people in our family who don't yet know Him. We have to open our mouth and to speak truth and life into the friend who's going through a difficult time. We get to be a part of the story, not as spectators, but as participants. So what's really interesting in numbers is that there have been 12 spies, these are godly men, who have been commissioned to go spy out what is to be the promised land. So this is the culmination of the entire Old Testament from the very first page, basically, until now as we read into the story. 12 men were sent out. They were chosen, they were anointed, they were favored, and they're sent out to take a look at the promised land so that they can report back and see, well, we're here, and we know God calls us there, and how is it going to happen for us to get there? And what's really interesting is 10 come back with a very negative report and a negative perspective, 2 come back speaking truth and speaking life. So I want to jump right into the middle of the story in Numbers 13, verse 31. It says this, but the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people that are living in the promised land. They are stronger than we are. They, and then these men spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. So it's just like today. Bad news spreads quickly. I don't know if you've been on Facebook, but that's it's true there too. They said this, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. Verse 33, we saw the Nephilim there, the, the descendants that may not come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And I want us to really focus on what these ten have said and done as it is given to us in verse 33. We saw the Nephilim there, we saw the giants there. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Joshua and Caleb speak differently. They're the two spies that have a positive report. They start speaking positively a few verses before this, and then after this, after all the Israelite encampment is in a, in a grumbling vest about what's next. And what's interesting is that Joshua and Caleb, when they speak positively, they aren't speaking falsely. Instead, they're talking about a greater truth. 
Instead of focusing just on the circumstances of the land, they began to focus on who God is, what God has done, and what God might do. But the negative report comes from the ten who do something that I'm tempted to do and maybe you can relate to as well. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look the same to them. They allow their circumstance to shift their self-perception and their identity. They allow what they saw to change how they saw themselves. That's one of the issues, one of the concerns that I see in this cultural moment today is that we can find friends and family members or maybe even ourselves in a difficult circumstance and there's that temptation to make that circumstance a part of our identity. And then when our identity becomes misaligned with who God is and who he says we are, that's where we wind up in a very troubling place. They see circumstances, they're God's chosen people, but then they start to say, well, you know what, I love this, we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. So they doubt themselves and they project that insecurity onto these giants who may or may not think this and they say, and we look the same to them. Well, they didn't see them, they were spying. They don't know what they thought. In fact, if I was one of the giants, if I was a descendant of Anna, I would have probably heard that a generation ago, a million people were redeemed from slavery by a supernatural God. See, they begin to assume their greatest fears from the posture of their enemy. This is where you and I can get into so much trouble as believers. We forget who God is, and then we quickly forget who God says we are. Let me tell you about nine years ago, ten years ago in the summertime. It was the first time that I'd ever, um, one of the first times in my life that I'd ever seen a therapist or a counselor. I was going through a lot of stuff after college, and it was the first time that I was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. And it's interesting because ever since that appointment, nine or ten years ago, I had the choice daily to, to, to choose what perspective I'll take on my circumstances. I can, I can over here say, well, I'm an anxious Christian. And I can, honestly, I think why we make our circumstances part of our identity is because it's a, it's a false but quick path to faith empowerment. If you have a circumstance, if there's something in your inner life that isn't lining up with scripture, you can easily make that an identity, find support for that identity anywhere in this world, and then feel like you're empowered. Feel like you have a way out because you have a label and you can manage that. So I can wake up every day and think, well, I'm an anxious Christian, I'm an anxious pastor. I can let that define who I am. Or I can say, I am a believer in Jesus. I'm a child of God. I'm a co-heir with Christ. And right now I'm struggling with anxiety. Now it seems like it's just a slight difference until you wind, uh, until you wind up yourself in a situation like I'm in. Because one is speaking of identity. And the other one is speaking about circumstances. I have a friend named Toby, and he says this. He says, anytime that we doubt who we are in God, it's as if we're taking his name in vain. He says, we're taking his name in vain because we're claiming to be his, but we're not letting him define who we are. I'm in that temptation often because if I say I'm the anxious Christian, that gives me a little bit of an excuse to walk in anxiety. That gives me a little bit more support, externally, temporary support, from others that may be struggling with mental health concerns. It lets me sit in a posture of, of powerless privilege, saying, well, that's just who I am. 
That's just what's going on. And it separates me from my primary identity, which isn't anxiety, but it's being in Christ. In this passage, and on campus every day, I'm surrounded by students who have allowed a broken part of their identity, a broken part of their circumstances to become their identity. And what's interesting is that we live in a cultural moment that would celebrate anything that anyone is going through. And I think we have this notion, at least on our college campuses in the city, that it's okay to not be okay. But I think the gospel would add a comma there in a few more words. If the gospel tells us it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. See, the gospel does something counterintuitive. It says, I see where you're at. I recognize the pain. I'll be with you. God with us, Emmanuel. I'll come. I'll move into the neighborhood. I'll put on human skin. I'll be in your world, but not so that you would stay that way. So that you would be given access to something greater. So that you would be who God really created you to be. And here's where this ties in for me with this idea of honor that you guys have been studying and reading and learning about. And I want to put it real simple, and I want to kind of jump from this story into a short conversation about honor. But here's what is important to know about these 10 who had the negative report. As we read their report in verses 31 and 33, we find out more about the condition of their heart than we do the condition of the land. But when we read about the Joshua and Caleb, the two who had a positive report, we don't just hear about the condition of the land. We hear about the condition of their trust and relationship with God. That's the opportunity that you and I have in our life and in our circumstances. We can either look at our circumstances and then try to decide what to do, or we can look at our circumstances and remind ourselves of who God is. See, when it comes to honor, whether it's in our lives with family members or in the local church, whether it even deals with how we treat ourselves, we can't walk in a life of honor unless we have our perspective correct. Because if you don't see God correctly, and you don't see yourself correctly, there's no way you're going to see somebody else correctly. If I don't remember who God made me, and who God asked me to be, then I'm not going to give the benefit of the doubt to someone else who claims to be a follower of Jesus, who might have done something to offend or annoy me in any given moment. If I'm not walking in the identity of being his, and I'm letting my circumstances shift that, well then I'll let circumstances shift how I see other believers. Because we have to be rooted in who God says we are. I tell us to students often, the greatest challenge of faith, if you want to boil it down, at least for our context, isn't that you can have an abundant life, it's just trusting God's definition of abundance. Every student that's made it to Georgetown and American University are on their way to an abundant life in the world's eyes. But those who come to read the gospel and come under the shadow of the cross have to understand that the way that God defines an abundant life and the way the world defines an abundant life are at odds with each other. And we have to choose which abundance we are storing up for, which abundance we are planting for, which abundance we are desiring to reap from. So here's a few thoughts on honor. And I think it starts with having our perspective correct. For those of you guys wondering, I don't want to provide a spoiler, but later in Numbers, thankfully the positive spies, they did a good job influencing, and they ended up in the promised land. So that was a spoiler alert. Sorry if you haven't read the story yet. But let's talk a little bit about honor. 
Honor given with an expectation of honor in return isn't honor at all. If we give honor with an expectation of getting honor, that's not honor, that's, that's networking or manipulation. And let me just share a little bit from my own story on how I know this to be true, because what God does in me, He wants to do through me. I don't just believe that for students, I believe that for myself. See, I grew up in a church just like this, and I love the local church. But there are some times where, as we mature as adults, we have to do the difficult work with the Holy Spirit and with community of deconstructing some of our faith experiences. And during that time, we can be tempted to demolish our faith. But instead, we should deconstruct some of our experiences with the help of the Holy Spirit and community so that we can grow in devotion to who God says we are. Well, the golden rule, right, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, sounds pretty harmless. But I'll be honest, when I read that as a church kid from the early 2000s, I think I understand it in a way that wasn't intended by God to understand. I read it like this in, in, in the Blaine version of the Bible, not authorized by the Holy Spirit. I read the golden rule like this, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and then they will do that. See, I read it as a promise when it's a command. And that's called entitlement. See, I believe I'm entitled to something. And the moment I'm entitled to something, I've gone beyond the identity of who God says I am. Because even Paul says, hey, I have no rights that I'm going to live. Uh, I'm going to live in my rights as an apostle. I'm going to lay them down. He says in 1 Corinthians, he says, he calls himself, I'm a servant appointed by God in charge. He doesn't even call himself a leader. He says, Apollos and I are servants of this community called by God to be in charge of preaching and teaching. He's giving up his rights. So for me, I can't or I should not act in a certain way so that I can get a certain result. Because that's trusting a system of karma, a system of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours and not trusting Jesus. See, I should give honor without an expectation for return. Jesus talks about this, and he says, if you love others and expect something in return, you're just as good as the pagans. Good job, everybody. But he says, you have to love those that are unlovable so that you can know what true love actually is. The second thing, and I think this might be the most applicable, is honor is a gift to a person for the purpose of worshiping and glorifying God. Honor is given horizontally because of a vertical bias, because of a vertical relationship. You and I are called in our local churches, in our families, in whatever organizations we're in, we're called to give honor. And honor, in my mind, is, a, is simply a predecision to choose to give the benefit of the doubt, to choose trust over suspicion. Honor is saying, I see how you're acting now, but I know who you really are in God's eyes. Honor is saying, I see beyond the now, and I see with spiritual eyes who God's made you to be. And I can only see that because someone saw that in me. Honor is a gift that we give to a person, to an organization, to a position, but it's not for them. It's for the glory of God. We read Paul talking about this specifically in Philemon. He says this, he says, I don't want to force you to free Onesimus. Instead, I want it to be your choice. Would you do it because of your relationship with me and as an expression of your love for Jesus? We are called to live in honor of those around these tables because honor, simply put, is the dialect spoken of the kingdom language. 
Honor is you and I choosing to not just believe that someone could have a better day, or not just being honest that someone had a bad day, but it's seeing someone from the vantage point of God. Honor is saying, is not asking the question, do they deserve this? But it's saying, do I love Jesus enough to see them the way he does? Honor is willing to walk in a posture of wanting to bless those around you, not because they need the blessing or should receive the blessing, but because you're so close with the blesser himself, that's the only way you can see the relationship function. Honor is an opportunity for you and I to live as people of heaven in the here and now. In my mind, honor will be very easy to give in heaven, but much more difficult to give now. But that's why we have the Holy Spirit. That's why it wasn't crazy when Jesus said, you will see and do even greater things than me. He wasn't speaking in hyperbole. He was speaking with prophecy. And what's interesting, and I learned this years ago, is that prophecy can be absolutely future-telling, but first and foremost, it's truth-telling. Even all Old Testament prophecy that later comes true in historical events, it wasn't about the event or the time or the place. It was usually about the truth coming into play in existence and their reality. Jesus was speaking prophetically. He was speaking truth into our lives, and he's asking us, are you willing to walk on the path of honor to those around near you. Here's what I love about that. And the third thing I mentioned about honor is this, is that in conflict, in transition, in change, honor becomes a spiritual discipline. Honor isn't always a delight to give. Honor is like parenting in my mind. I talk about parenting a lot because I have a four-year-old and I minister to college students. None of them are parents, so I can be an expert in front of them. So if you have kids older than me, so I'm not going to be as much of an expert, but follow with me here. Parenting is an incredible adventure. It's an incredible calling, but it doesn't always line up with what I delight in. Three days ago, my son, Jeremiah, who's four and a half, he, he, uh, he mentioned um, you know, how gross it is to be in the bathroom. And he's like, it's so gross to have to use the bathroom and be in the bathroom. And my wife and I are like, dude, we've been doing this with you for four years, and you don't have to tell us how gross it is. Like, he was just getting how gross it is. Because like, he's learning how to clean himself in some areas. He's like, that's just so gross to do. And we're like, you've never said anything truer. Bless my heart. You know what? Well, you, you were saying something that we already knew to be true, because oftentimes the spiritual disciplines feel like duty because they lead to future delight. We're choosing to do something now so that we can live in an alternative future. I remember a mentor of mine, her name is Stefa, and she works in Chi Alpha. She sat me down for a coffee about five years ago that I'll never forget. And so we sit down at a coffee shop where you'll often find me hanging out with students, and, and she said, Blaine, I just want to thank you I feel like you walk in a culture of honor for those that have come before you. And I was like, this is great. I love affirmation, you know, you know, words of life. That's like my love language. I'm an Enneagram, I'm a two-in-one. So this is just like in my lane. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you for thank you for noticing how great I am. It's not like what I'm feeling in that moment, you know? I'm like, yes, I believe and receive that word. Amen. When students come with complaints, I'm like, I can't answer that in the name of Jesus. But when it's affirmational, I receive that, yes, you are full of the Spirit. And then she said this. 
She said, I don't ever want you to expect the type of honor you gave. And I was like, what? <laughs> Can I get my money back on this espresso? Like, no, I thought I was sowing and then I'm, then I'm reaping. And she was basically explaining this kingdom principle that we don't sow just so that we reap, we sow so that there would be a harvest for the Lord. Wow. In Psalms it says, it says, the inheritance of Jesus is the nations. My inheritance is just being a part of that story. And what I loved about what my friend Stefan was warning me is that sometimes in the church we can give and we can serve and we can exhaust ourselves, but we're not doing it for the Lord. We're doing it either for a person in this room or we're doing it for how we might think they would treat us later and then we're disappointed. Because we're giving and serving and loving in a way that God never intended us to. He wasn't asking me to be a person that gave honor so that one day I'd receive honor. He was saying, blame this person who I put in charge of the ministry at this time. I've chosen them and I want you to worship me by honoring them. What's interesting about the Christian faith is that the best part of it is giving or sowing or investing into somebody else. That period, full stop. Not so that we would get, but so that we'd experience giving. It's really interesting as you begin to prepare our hearts to close and reflect on this. So maybe there's two groups of people that are here today. And the Lord might be whispering to you, speaking to your spirit, tugging at your heart to respond to our time together as a community. Maybe the first one is this, is that your vision has become misaligned because of your circumstances, your vision of yourself. You have doubted the dreams that God has placed in your heart because they haven't happened in your timing, and that has turned into a place of doubt. And the Lord would want to say, come and lay that at my feet. Remember who I am and whose you are. Maybe the second group you've been hearing a lot about honor. And for you, it's, you just don't buy it. You just don't think that's appropriate. Or you're like, pastor's talking about honor. That's kind of self-serving. But I love what Hebrews 13, 7 says. It says one of the roles of the church is to follow Jesus and to follow leadership in such a way that it makes leadership a joy to leaders and not a burden. So I know that might be weird. You you're hearing this maybe, you know, you're 50 years old and and I just turned 30, and you're like, who is this mustache guy to tell me about what honor is? But I'm not talking about it from my perspective. I'm talking about it from the perspective of Scripture. And I know there are some students in our ministry who have lived out that notion that have made my life a joy. But then there are some other students in our ministry who have made leading. I would not use the word joy as the word to describe it. And the difference is always honor. It's trusting seeing and it's knowing and it's knowing it's knowing who someone really is even when they don't know it yet it's seeing into somebody's eyes and into their heart trusting that there's more at work than even they would be able to articulate at a given moment so maybe you're here and you need god to realign your vision to show you that you're not a grasshopper in your own eyes you're not a grasshopper in his eyes and you're not a grasshopper in the eyes of the world that you are called to greatness that because Christ is in you, you are now living with the resurrection spirit, Romans 8. You are now living in the reality 
But nothing can separate you from the love of God, and that love is one that shifts identity. Or maybe you're here and you're realizing that there is work to do when it comes to the role that honor plays in your life. Especially if you have a, such a, a deep sense of hard work or a strong work ethic, you can easily begin to think that honor should only be earned by a person. But I'm here to say that honor was earned by Jesus for all those who fall under the name of Jesus. And that's the beautiful mess of community that you and I are called into. So I want to pray for us as we begin to respond. I know the worship team and prayer team might be coming up as well. Why don't you stand with me as you're able? I want to pray into these two areas for us. God, we quiet our hearts and minds knowing that you speak. You speak through community. Speak through scripture, but you also speak so clearly through the Holy Spirit in each of us. God, I pray that in these few moments of, of examination, that it wouldn't just be self-examination, but it would be examination done with the gentle hand of the Holy Spirit, who meets us where we're at, but isn't satisfied with where we're standing. God, I pray for those maybe in that first group that see themselves as small, that see their circumstances as too big and too hard. Would you remind them what you did a generation ago? Would you remind them what you did in their family? Would you remind them of the dreams? Would you remind them of the answered prayers? And would you remind them that you are never changing? That the favor of God doesn't run out as long as our trust is kept in the right place. So if that's you and you're saying, hey, today I need to respond so that God would help me to see him clearly and see myself clearly so that I can begin to see my circumstances clearly. If that's you, I'd love over this time as we sing for you to come and meet with someone who's up here and pray with me. But maybe you're in that second group. And the Lord is calling you to a higher level of honor than you're living. I want to tell you he's not mad at you. He's not disappointed in you. But he just wants something more for you. The beauty of the cross is not that God just wants from us, He wants things for us. So maybe that's you. Maybe you've been hurt by the local church. Maybe you've been hurt by a believer in your family, and you're starting to doubt. You love Jesus, but you don't love Jesus' people. He's asking you to change your perspective, not based on somebody's actions or intentions, but based on the worship that is due His Son, Jesus. So God, I pray as people respond in that second group and come up for prayer or make an altar where they're standing or sitting, God, would you do the work in our hearts so that we would literally follow you closely and then begin to look more like you. And so God, as we open these altars on Pentecost Sunday, God, may we be empowered, not just for the sake of experiencing you greater ourselves, but so that those who aren't here yet would experience you through us. So that the Colossians one reality that we would be in people's lives as a link to the glory of God for the sake of others. And we pray these things, and we trust in you, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. These altars are open.